Hello, and welcome back to the Video Essay Podcast. I'm your host, Will DeGravio, and on today's show, I sit down with Dr. Terry Francis, who is an associate professor at the University of Indiana Bloomington and the director of the Black Film Center Archive. We discuss Terry's new book, Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prism. I first got to know Terry in 2019 when she was a participant in the Scholarship in Sound and Image Workshop at Middlebury College, where I worked as the teaching assistant. Listeners of this show, of course, will be very familiar with the Scholarship in Sound and Image Workshop, and in particular how the workshop, which is also referred to as Video Camp, functions. In the first week of Video Camp, students create, or participants rather, uh, I guess they're also students, uh, create a range of videographic exercises to get them acquainted to the form, and then in the second week, begin to create a video essay of their own. Terry at Video Camp worked with the films of Josephine Baker. In our conversation today, Terry talks about how videographic criticism not only helped shape some of the ideas that she explores in her book, but also how working with the material videographically helped change her relationship with the material itself. Um, Terry is very candid and honest in this process. Uh, She says that in 2019, when she went to the workshop, she thought she was done with the book, done with Josephine Baker. Um, And it was only by working through the material videographically that she realized that she was not done. Um, And in the interview, she even says that it wasn't up until that point that she felt that she had a real love for Josephine Baker. I mean, obviously she loved her to a degree, having worked on her life and career for so many years, but she really developed an intimacy um, with Josephine Baker that had not been there before. So it's it's a really compelling and powerful interview. And I think perhaps more than any conversation that I've had on this show is really a testament to the power of videographic criticism and what it can do, what it can be, and the role that it plays in a critic and scholar's tool belt. And that even if your goal as a, as a listener of the show is not to be a, a video essayist and to be making video essays regularly, that there is so much to be gained by adding videographic criticism to your tool belt and using videographic criticism as a way of research, as, as Jason Mattel has said, a lab of sounds and images as a place to play around and get to know your object of study in a new way. So if there's anyone who you know out there who is skeptical about videographic criticism and its place um, in the academy, please send them this interview uh, with Terry, because I think, like I said, it, it just really, really makes clear the impact that this doing this kind of work has not only on one's research, but on one as a, as a person and as an individual. And um, I, like I said, I, I really enjoyed this conversation with Terry and who is a friend and who I got to watch uh, play around with the material in that way. And it was, was a witness to what she describes in this interview. But hearing her talk about it now was just all that more inspiring and, and, and really left me with a lot to think about. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Terry Francis. I'm very pleased to welcome on to the Video Essay Podcast, one of my favorite people who I have ever met in the video essay world, uh, Terry Simone Francis, Dr. Terry Francis. We met at the 
2019 scholarship in sound and image workshop. I remember I picked Terry up from the airport in Middlebury, Vermont after a, I remember it was a, you had a ton of hurdles to get through on your way from <laughs> Ver, Indiana to Vermont. So I feel like I remember just being like, so how was your flight? And you were like, well, and then like <laughs> we just went through all of the different uh, obstacles. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, it's really a miracle that you're here. Um, so very happy that we can chat here over zoom in a way that requires very, uh, far less logistical hurdles, but Terry, I'm sure is well known to many people who are listening to this podcast, but for those who may not be familiar, Terry is an associate professor at the university of Indiana, Bloomington, the director of the black film center archive, the author of numerous scholarly publications ranging from outlets like Another Gaze, Film Quarterly, Black Camera, Feminist Media Histories, Film History, and the reason that she is joining us here on the show today, the author of Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prism from Indiana University Press. Terry, welcome to the Video Essay Podcast. Thank you, Will. I'm completely delighted to be here. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you. So like I said, we, we first met in 2019, and this was when you were in the process of finishing up this book and trying to get it out into the world. And you were also working with uh, Josephine Baker's body of work as part of the Scholarship and Sound and Image Workshop. So this conversation for people listening in is going to kind of be two parts. One, talking about Terry's book, of course, then also trying to think through how she thought through this material audiovisually, which I think is a really fascinating subject. But my first question to you, Terry, is for someone who's not familiar with Josephine Baker, and we also might be familiar with Josephine Baker from a variety of contexts. We might be familiar with her her films, um, but not her music, or her music and not her films, or her stage performances, or just her, her general impact on culture and politics globally uh, during her lifetime. So I know that she's someone who we could spend multiple hours talking about who she is in her biography, but for someone who is looking for an introduction, could you give us a glimpse into, into her life and work? Yeah, because you don't need to spend 20 years of your life with her like <laughs> I did. <laughs> I could just sort of boil it down. Um, so Josephine Baker was a Midwestern girl from St. Louis, Missouri, or Missouri, who uh, developed herself as a comedy dancer in vaudeville and performing around the country, but particularly in New York. And based on that, the notoriety that she built up for herself, she was invited to go to Paris to perform in La Revue Negra, uh, <laughs> N-E-G-R-E, and that was 1925. And um, and I know that it was Im- it is important that she was doing this because it was covered in the newspaper that Josephine Baker and these other artists were off to Paris to be part of this, you know, the show. And so she goes to Paris as this comedy dancer and finds herself in a very different context, um, the sort of Fran- French colonial fascination with the other and she comes in there as an American performing American-ish dances but also Josephine Baker kind of exuberant bodiness <laughs> just sort of arms and eyes and you know everything like moves all at once and uh for listeners i am also moving my yeah, arms yeah. <laughs> and uh to try to somehow convey this um energy you've conveyed uh, it 
<laughs> and then she, you know, she, as she put it, the public just embraced her and she became a star um, and then went on to have this 50 year career in Europe as a dancer, as a singer, as a, um, a theater, you know, musical theater entertainer in, in France. And what did, I actually meant to say something beforehand, which is that if you are looking for more uh, information on Terry's background and work, Peter Labuza has a great interview with Terry as part of the the Cinephiliacs podcast. Um, so that's why I'm not asking Terry like a lot of biographical questions about herself because I would, like, you know, why, you know, you know, why repeat that? So I would direct people there as well if you want more of Terry after this, which you definitely will. But my question, follow up to what you just said is what would have been Josephine Baker and I guess the... Americans in the Midwest, what would have been their perception of Paris? And in particular, what was it like, I guess, for her and those other artists to go there at that time? Oh, it was very exciting. Uh, I mean, just the way she put it herself was, you know, Paris was the center of art. Right. It was the center of all good things cultural. And so there was right. a lot of excitement around that. And then also there were reports in the paper of other famous Black Americans, uh, particularly right. jazz musicians and actors, but, you know, like Florence Mills, young performer, because um, there was there was an article about like, you know, these two famous, most two famous Black Americans in Paris right now. And it was a boxer and this um, young um, singer and dancer, Florence Mills. And then, and then it was Josephine Baker. So there was definitely an awareness that there was a vogue and a trend and excitement around jazz in particular. Um, people like Langston Hughes were, were going there. Um, it was, it was a known center. And I think it would have been seen too as this like, you know, like a counterpoint to the kind of like Jim Crow America and also like overly moral puritanical America too. So right. I think pa Paris was like this sweet life, this um, fun, creative, artistic, freer, freer uh, life for the people that that went there. And this was all reported in the in the black press places like the Chicago Defender, the New York Amsterdam News or uh, the Baltimore Afro-American. I asked that question because your book is looking at Josephine Baker through the lens of her cinematic work and her development, as you say, uh, into the first truly global black woman film star. And I guess, you know, it's easy for us now to see how a star could become a global phenomenon, right? Like you and I are having this conversation over Zoom. And so... Our, as, as you've already said, one becomes global through all of these newspapers, which just feels like it's like hard to comprehend now, right? That newspapers had such a, you know, that much reach. And so when for her becoming a global star, is she becoming a global star by the work that she's doing in Paris? And then it's the, the work there is shared out or I guess across Europe as well. Or would you go to Paris once you had reached that global star status? coming with the, <laughs> the juicy questions um interesting why is so it one of the answers to that is this other question why did i use the word global mm -hmm. i'm using the word global in order to indicate the kind of black film something i'm trying to say something about black film um and i'm trying to say something about what it means that this african-american performer it takes a lead role in French productions and that this echoes back on how we need to be thinking about the formation of cinema among 
within the United States. Um, because I'm trying to say that the way that we construct Black film in the U.S., tends to be just U.S. productions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we need to be thinking about it as a global phenomenon. The direct answer to your question, though, is I think something like she was known, I don't know, would I say nationally? I mean, she's known in New York. She's, you know, she goes from being this comedy end girl. That was her shtick that she performed as um, in these vaudeville programs so that like she'd be in the chorus line and the rest of the chorus line would be very rigid and um, you know, chorus lines are like the legs kick up and stuff and they're all uniform. And then she would be like the one on the end who didn't understand or remember the lines. So she was doing rubbery legs and crossing her eyes and, you know, just goofing off basically. And uh, people really loved that, you know, at least in the press, like, I mean, it's not a thousand articles, but when she comes up, it's very positive. They really like what she's doing. She becomes, you know, promoted as the lightning of jazz and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm saying, like, when she goes, and then when she goes to New York, she's sort of a, a known quantity right. performing there. But but I think, yes, going to Paris puts her on an international platform. Right. Is then she performs in this show, you know, in the on the Champs-Élysées, with the other Americans. But her next contract is with a French music hall. And she performs with the Folie Bergère. She gets a huge contract starting in 1926. And that goes on for a couple of years before she begins to tour in tour in Europe, you know, tour internationally. So I suppose that is the other meaning of global in that she's performing in an international city to be big in Paris. You know, that's big. And right. it put it puts her in a certain milieu, and it's she's moving from being a, a seen as uh, I don't know. She, I guess it's it's always important that she's American, but she's moving from being a specifically American novelty in that first show, and now she's becoming a Parisian entertainer. What was her? relationship with America once she, I guess, because I believe she lived and died in France, correct? Like, and so what was her relationship with America? And I guess I mean that in two senses, meaning like, how did she herself view her her own relationship with America? And I guess, how did America view her? Right. Well, I mean, I think the question is, which America are we talking about? Right. Because I know for me in the book, I'm really focused on her resonance with the Black American press and that it's, I mean, you couldn't say it's exactly the same as everyday, um, you know, African-Americans, but it gives you a, it's an index, a window into the, this possibility. So I think there, there was a sense of pride. Um, Occasionally I would see like kind of a moral thing about like, well, I don't know, these girls over there just dancing naked. She needs to put on some clothes. You know, every once in a while you see that. But for the most part, it's just like this lady is a big star and this is exciting and it's part of this whole thing. You know, people are saying things like, because, you know, some of these reporters, I think, are writing from Paris. So they're also experiencing the the expat, you know, vibe. And like one person says, um, 
you know, in Paris, when people want a certain shade of stockings, they just ask for the Josephine Baker shade. <laughs> like, whoa, okay. Wow, okay, that's stardom for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's like super specific. And um, and so, and so but some, sometimes it's an AP article that circulates around lots of different places. So there's that kind of fame. But then there are these other experiences that Baker has when she does return to the U.S. And they're almost uniformly unpleasant at, at first, like in the 30s and stuff, where she comes back and she performs at the Ziegfeld Follies and she just doesn't feel she's being treated well, you know, that people are not excited about her glamour, her gowns, um, this French accent that she has now. And is she's, you know, she's treated a certain way in Paris. She is the star and she returns thinking she's going to be the star in this show. I think it was like Bob Hope and some other, excuse me, some other folks like that. And they're just like, um, who's this colored girl from, you know, like, I mean, so, so that's really negative. And, and she's always, you know, passionately, has a passionate contempt for Jim Crow and for the ways that the everyday black person is treated in the U.S. and is really vocal about that through mm-hmm. the, thir- the 30s. And of course, in the 50s, when she returns and refuses to perform to uh, segregated audiences. So, so there's that. And then she, but, you know, she comes back and she speaks to the March on Washington and she. It feels like she's addressing herself to the youth and um, and is inspired by that. So, so I guess she has a relationship, a, a, a couple of different relationships to you know maybe a Black America that she felt sympathetic towards, connected to, and inspired by. And um, I mean, you know, not you know, and then like this the this other racist America, the general America that she felt was you know obviously like you know, just vile and, and that this regime should just end. And she was going to do her part to do that. But that, but that's why, I mean, hmm, I mean, I suppose for me though, in the book, what I'm focused on is this very narrow, tiny aspect of her career. That is these three or four films that she appears in and Wanting, and I want to reflect on them as a complex but compelling achievement of hers. I'll use that as a segue to get to her film career. And I think I know this. I know that I know this from your video essay. So I'm not I'm not jumping the guy. We don't need to get into the video essay right now. But would it be correct to say that she had her doubts about film as a as an art form? I don't know about it in a macro sense, but at least for her her personal relationship with it and how she saw herself as a as a film performer. What is her entrance like into the into the film world? Because again, you're, you're painting a picture of a, a, a celebrity here in this narrow window, but who's who's doing all these different types of things. And so does she enter the film world because she wants to become a film star? Or is it just something you do as a, when you're a global celebrity, you, you do everything, right? Like you go on Bob Hope, you do records, you do this stuff, like, or was it just another vehicle for her? Or, you know, what was her entrance into, into cinema rooted in? What was that like? I I actually think it's all of those things. Mm She, in some sense, she enters into film. In another sense, she's being managed and she is assigned a film. And what I, what I know about her ideas about film comes from her memoir that I, I think I understood what she was saying and some, and just some smatterings of quotations here and there. Some, at some moments, she's like, I don't get movies. 
what, are, what, what even is this? <laughs> you know, uh, early on. And then she's, and then she's kind of intrigued, um, excited when she, I think she, there's an occasion where she sees a recording of something that she had seen live and she's like, wow, okay, <laughs> I get it. You know, like this is interesting. And then she starts sort of, you know, I, one day I want to have a cinema in my own house and I would love to be in a, a, tr- a film that's beautiful, something that's true. And, um, and there's this quote that someone quoted her as saying that she, you know, I don't want to, I just don't want to do any of these uh, mammy type roles or whatever. And, um, and I think, you know, now we respect and revere Louise Beavers and Hattie McDaniel playing these roles. And, um, and yet I think I can understand, you know, what she might've meant when she said that that she did not want to be in the background. Um, I was just looking at Mae West films, um, probably like a lot of people in the waning hours before Criterion removed it from their streaming <laughs> service. <laughs> so it was like 10 p.m. And it was like, okay, I can do one. And it's, you know, it suddenly becomes super urgent to see it. And, and you can see the pattern there where like Mae West is glowing, just dripping with sparkling jewels. Her hair is sparkling. And, um, and Louise B is getting her dressed and undressed and bringing her, you know, bringing her um, the jewels to put on and everything, bringing her probably water and stuff. And she's, um, and she's dressed in black as a stark contrast to, uh, to Mae West's character. Well, Mae West, I guess, is the character. She had some sort of a name in the movie, but of course she's always Mae West in every movie. Which, um, which film is this? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? It was the one with Cary Grant, your man. But so I, I was just, I really just think having, you know, just thinking about Baker when I was looking at this, like for a second, it took, it took me a moment to be like, oh wait, that's Louise Beavers. So then I'm like super excited, you know, um, from Imitation of Life and other films where she's, you know, plays this, this extraordinary dramatic role of this mother whose, whose daughter, um, sort of disowns her and wants to pass for white and the, the drama that I can't unborn my own child, you know, that's, and she, you know, she really delivers the pathos of that. So anyway, so I'm excited to see her in this role. And, but then I'm also thinking like, ah, this is the thing. This is what Baker is thinking about. She wants to be the sparkly center of the frame and not this background character who is assisting. And because that's the whole point of being in show business is that you don't do drudgery anymore right and you know and so that's this is the scenario that she's worried about so um you know so i i so i i understand what she's worried about and um and then in this so somebody approaches her and proposes this film i think it must have been was it henry etivion or was it the novelist? It was a journalist or a novelist? Oh my goodness. Um, who approaches her and proposes this idea and she's excited to do it. But then, you know, the conditions aren't really great. She's performing in the film after she's already been performing the theater. So she's tired. Um, people are not translating the script completely for her. So she doesn't really know what's happening. And she's looking around at the set and she's like, is this is supposed to be the tropics? That's a, pine tree like what what even is this <laughs> like you know and why and then she's like i'm doing the same things that i do on stage she's bored and of course you know movie making is tedious You're, it's a lot of waiting around so she's kind of bored and not excited about it on the and that level of just the making it and and then there's more which i mean which i 
you're talking about these later interviews where she reflects back on how it felt for her to perform in this way. But yeah, and um, yeah, you know, because I, I got, yeah, I was just curious what she thought about her experiences. And I was surprised, you know, kind of delighted to see that she did reflect on on these experiences. And that became a way to think about her as as someone discerning of her own experience and, and not a puppet or not a, you know, she's not, 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 you know, that there's something going on that she's thinking about. I know she says in one of those interviews, she's commenting on how when she's on a film set, she doesn't feel the, the warmth of an audience and, and doesn't, you know, doesn't have that human connection. Obviously there was you know, it was very common, of course, for vaudeville stars to become film stars, right, at that period. But your book is all about Baker's authorial strategy um, and thinking of herself as the author of her own image in her own works. And so how did how did she, you know, because in some ways in vaudeville is similar to film in that there are directors and performances and other people on set and decor. So how did she exert her authorship in vaudeville in a way that was she was not able to do on a film set and then I'll of course want to get into how she did exert her authorship on a film set but was that was that part of what she felt like she was missing kind of this control of how she could present herself to the audience and build that connection with an audience mm, again with the juicy questions <laughs> I have to think now um <laughs> I'm just glad you think they make sense on some level because I'm just. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Like we're both talking at the end of a long day. Yeah. I mean, um, let me parse that out a, a little please, bit. Please. Because yes. it's what you're getting at is really interesting. And it's kind of the knot of issues that has kept me occupied for the last decade or so. <laughs> Good. Or I'm glad both. we're going to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get into it. Um, part of this is that. I am the person who is conducting and constructing this authorial strategy. Right. I have I am myself trying to be an author and I am according to Baker what I am seeking for myself. And I'm not going to establish my authorship by claiming she had none. I'm not going to do that to her. Any any black woman. I'm not writing about somebody <laughs> to be like you know this to this is how you know what I'm saying. I don't even know, I don't even know how I would say it. I know exactly what you're saying. Yes. You know, so I suppose what I see in her I, is what I'm able to see in her because I'm building that within myself. Um, and so I and there was already so much scholarship and popular work about her as merely a symptom of a colonial aesthetic or colonialist aesthetic there and um, that she succumbed to a narrative of exoticism and primitivism. And my thought was, well, aren't we all, (laughs) we, we are, we are working within structures that we don't control. And, um, and yet we find ways we're still who we are. We're still writing. We're still thinking. Um, we're still just being people. And so as she is a human being and someone who sustained a 50 year career, 
I mean, you don't do that as a complete idiot. There has to, be, you know, there has to be something there that people want that you are generating together on stage. And um, and I was moved also by the ways that performers responded to her. They seemed to be able to locate an intelligence in her performance that was maybe escaping those of us that are really only writers or are, um, you know, or scholars who live in a very different world to the world of, of an entertainer. And maybe just, we just don't fully understand what they're talking about. So I decided to follow the lead of those who did understand her. And, and then I uh, looked I sort of knitted together the things that she had said across a variety of different biographies and her autobiography to to gain a sense of what, of course, ended up being a really fractured, um, unfinished relationship to the cinema. But then also by reframing her with the response of her peers in the black press, I was able to just get away from this exoticism of the whatever. I mean, yes, she's a revelation, style, rhythm, the whole thing. But it it struck me that as I read about her in the Chicago Defender and stuff, they um, they just thought she was funny, and that um, and I was like, oh wow, could comedy be the place where she establishes her originality and authorship? just as a physical comedian. And it looks like that's exactly what happened. And it's, and how did that happen? The story goes that she talks herself, no, well, it could be that she may have helped. She capitalized on an injury and that another person had, they weren't in the show. And she was like, well, I could do it. And I, you know, if I learn in the coming years that Ms. Baker may have, helped this injury to happen, I would not be surprised. <laughs> you know, because she was, I think she was a very ambitious and serious person and just really a, maybe a little a little touched that she might <laughs> might do a do a little violence. I don't know. But so this some person on the set is like either sick or they fell and broke their something or other and she talks herself into the role and and that and I think that moment of saying aha I'm doing this that's what an author is you see that space you put yourself in it and you make your mark and that's what she did um, and then I think and there's a second moment when she um, it's like she's up on these pulleys or something and I guess it got stuck or whatever something and she just went with it. And just started goofing off and making faces and, you know, doing her, I mean, I think she says like, I just started kicking like crazy and <laughs> whatever. And people laughed and she went with it. And I was like, that's the mark of an artist. You just mm. you take your moment and you make your mark. And so I just felt that that's what I would trace in this book. And I would think about this relationship between the character on screen, the persona emerging in the press, like how people were talking about her and how she was sort of representing herself. You kind of never know. And the mysterious part of her that we'll never know um, about right. what she's, she's doing. And I would just sort of decide to see that, to see that in a generative way. 
You mentioned that you saw those three, the, the kind of the who she was personally, the persona and then whatever character that she was playing on screen. There was a kind of visual dialogue between the three. What, what does that mean? How deliberate do we understand that? Like how much was she thinking of that and doing things to put those three things into dialogue? Or was it just a byproduct of how she worked or, or both? Oh, I think it's a, oh, I guess it could be both. I think it's a byproduct of how, actually, no, it is both. Because she did say that she always tries to put something of her own life in her movies. Um, so like the sort of rags to riches or unknown to discovered. Um, that uh, that she said she liked that, that she really always wanted to have that in her movies. Um, but it's also the case that I think the way to understand her is that whenever you see one image of her, you're also seeing all the other ones. When she plays a character in a movie, she's in that movie because of the offstage entertainment and the offstage persona and that that carries with her. You note that she worked for for one film company in France that was all white managed and that her co-stars were white and white writers and white directors. How did that experience, how, how did, or I guess, how did that condition shape her, her, her authorship as you understand it? Yeah. I've, I mean, I, I do think that probably all of these companies were, you know, white directors and white, white French companies and stuff. I don't know. There might've been one dude who was kind of a Moroccan or North African or something like that. And that's why the, one of her films is shot in Tunisia or Morocco. But how does she experience that? I think she just experienced it as I'm in a movie in France. I mean, cause what do you have to think about what I'm interested in is the, the labor of this, that this right. person arrives in France at 19, doesn't speak French. And then 10 years later, she's starring in a film and speaking French the entire time. So this, that's, one, that's one aspect of the labor that I find compelling and impressive and is a mark of a, another kind of authorship that's happening and, and that she's controlling her career. Because, of right. course, in a sense, yes, it's lines, but I mean, what is agency? Agency is what you do. And I think you have to give her credit for what she's, you know, what she's actually doing. So I guess that's part of, so I guess that's how I see it. But it's also to, for, I, I point that out about the, um, these companies, again, to come back to how black film and African-American cinema is, well, black film being defined as African-American cinema and African-American cinema being defined as like US-based cinema that I'm saying, yeah, I know, doesn't seem like she would really fit, but I'm telling you, this this is really important. And, And then I just tried to give attention to what the, you know, the kind of work that she did. Um, But, but the, the frame is shifted from France to the United States. When she's on the film set, is her is she involved in the production decisions that we would might we might more traditionally associate with authorship, or is her authorship primarily coming through in the other ways that we've just kind of like performance and her dress and her history and her dialogue and her her own lived experience? Is she involved in the more productiony side of things? I would think it's more the the latter. So I mean, mm-hmm. one of the 
conundrums of this project is that um, it is a film studies book, and yet I'm discussing Baker ter- she, in terms that are different from the conventional means by which we establish somebody as a star or even as an author. So that as there, I have not seen the screenplay with her name on it, notes, um, correspondence where she's like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I, I, you know, I just don't, I haven't seen that. And, um, but it could be there somewhere. Um, maybe I got too caught up in the imagination or something. So there, there are these ways, the normal ways that we determine someone's control did not appear available to me. And also the conventional ways that we think about a star, it's more like the the Mae West that I was talking about before, that the person is clearly in the spotlight of the film and other characters reinforce that by shining their own spotlight upon this figure, right? So the sparkle is complete. With Baker, she does not appear to fully have that infrastructure of adoring gazing around her. And so she's also not exactly the star of her own films. But I just remain committed to this idea (laughs) (laughs) that, that there is an authority Mm-hmm. that needs to be attended to mm-hmm. and that the ways in which she a- appears to be the star and is not the star appears to be the um, the whole occasion for this film and yet somehow is sidelined. That's still really interesting. I mean, the star is a lighting setup. I mean, Mae right. West sparkles or Marlena Dietrich sparkles because there's a light here, there's another one here, and it sets their eyes kind of sparkling. And it's the blondness, right? You're supposed to be a phenomenon of light. I think this is um, Richard Dyer, or Heavenly Bodies, yeah, uh, or, or maybe the book White, but that the star is actually a star. They're supposed right. <laughs> to be radiating light and a phenomenon of light that attracts the viewer and that attracts other characters. So like it, you know, even like with some, with like, um, I sure wish I remember the title of this, this Mae West Cary Grant film. Um, <laughs> but I mean, he's, 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 a, he's drawn to her helplessly right. when he, I think he's supposed to be arresting her or something. And of course he, he can't, he can't handle it <laughs> you know, because she's just too much. And all these men are just going crazy over her. And I don't, I mean, I don't know that that, is, that that specific scenario is what Ms. Baker would have wanted for herself. But I mean, I, at some point she does kind of say to her manager, um, it's quoted in one of the biographies, you know, I mean, couldn't, couldn't I get the guy? Couldn't I win this love story? And they're like, oh no, you know, you're dedicated to your work and that's what's most important. And there isn't really any further explanation of that. But I mean... That is really odd. This was somebody who was getting marriage proposals and, you know, whatever, flowers and men chasing her up and down the street. And and it's like, why would you put her in a movie and not make her physical beauty the center of the movie? Do you not know how to do that? Is it like, what is it? And, and so I, I, you know, I can't get inside of people's heads, but I do think it's just very, um, just very moving to me 
that these films would not exist without her. And yet they do seem to kind of run past her in a way that is similar to, to the work, uh, the appearance of somebody like Lena Horne, who played characters that could be easily cut out of a film. So, so what I'm saying is that the, her, she's not part of the main story in her films. And, um, and it took me a really long time to see that. I, I, I don't know what I was writing about with these films for a really long time. And then it just sort of dawned on me like, wait, what is, what is going on? And it was hard to make, it didn't make sense. So it was hard to make sense of it. Uh, yeah. And then eventually I think I was able to, to just try to talk about the work she does on screen and to, and the, and that if there isn't, if she's not an author by normal means, that there is a kind of authority and that we as the critic, as, as critics and as her audience can, can sort of participate somehow in this and find a recuperative narrative for her. You mentioned Marlena Dietrich writing. I'll plug a great video essay by Patrick Keating on the lighting of Marlena Dietrich and the lighting of the star and everything. But going off what you just said and be my final question before we transition to talking about your own relationship with videographic criticism. But you you've kind of just talking there about how this book and your work is trying to look at her and her body of work and how she functions within a film in a new in a new way in acknowledging, as I think you said, like her, her own labor and her own authorship and also this effort to think of her as a global figure and to, as, as you put it far more, far better than I could think of her in the broader tradition of black film and African-American cinema. How have you, how, what was her influence? You know, obviously she is a, she remains a you know, an influential cultural figure in a variety of ways, but in, in films specifically have, have there been filmmakers who have pointed to her and her work or, or performers or, or whomever. And how is I get how has her work been viewed by artists up until this point? Oh well, that's actually like the most illuminating part. The, that that's all, the ways that performers um, have talked about Baker is almost the inciting incident for me to say, "Wait a minute, are we looking at her?" fully Um, because I was writing like kind of a book that followed the path of yes she is um, you know uh, like this compromised character and she's an example of uh, and then it was like well maybe something else is going on that we can talk about but it was really um, the citations of Beyonce and I and I I wrote a piece that was like "Hmm, well what does Beyonce see in Josephine Baker Let's reflect on that for a minute. Um, and I started to notice Baker coming up in all kinds of films. Um, Jabril Giotmanbedi's uh, Tuki Buki. Her disembodied voice is the siren call to Paris. Uh, so she represents something, you know, really specific about what migration to France might mean for the two characters in that film. Um, there are a number of citations like that where she kind of comes up and, and it's something like kind of a cameo. It's like really specific. There's, it can't be anybody else because there's only this one black woman that was famous in Paris, you know, in the twenties and thirties, bananas, glamour. Um, and then that's her singing voice, this, this like sort of singing French with something of an American accent, maybe that's important. But I think, but I also wanted to go back to this path I took to reflecting on Baker's authorship because 
the way that I got there was really just prioritizing the moments of self-determination that countered the popularly known story of Josephine Baker. So the popularly known story of Josephine Baker is she had to go to Paris in order to be famous. And so there's like the sense of like fleeing. And I was like, well, what if we looked at what her performance life was like before she goes to Paris? And then I was really surprised to find that she was, loved. <laughs> and, uh, and I get that she, it was not enough for her, probably not being paid enough or paid at all or anything, but it wasn't nothing, you know? And I was also struck by the moments of just the decisions that she made. I cut my hair, I left, was one of the lines. For, and it was like, well, that seems like a really definitive moment that she's, you know, just kind of moving forward. And so I was really taken up with the momentum that she seemed to be creating for her life, the way that she, her account of negotiating her pay rate for performing in, in the review in Paris, instead of just being like, because it's just a whole different picture. The picture of her as just this like naive, unknown, oh, okay, Paris, okay. And just taking whatever she's offering and then going and then, oh, she blows up and it's like, you know what I mean? She was completely nothing in the U.S. And and of course it seems like nothing because the Paris thing was really like amazing. Um, Her life changed practically overnight. But there are these moments where she's reflecting on that and she's reflecting on how much she enjoys being in Paris and that she likes this new apartment and then she opens up a club. And I tried to put throughout the book photographs that represented the aspects of Baker that I thought people needed to see along with these other stories of her sitting at a desk and doing what we're doing, sitting at a desk and reading something (laughs) that she had an office that there, you know, she is in daytime. And as I got older, (laughs) so much older (laughs) working on this project, I was practically Baker's age, you know, when she was debuting in Paris when I started this. And now I'm at, you know, almost at midlife uh, at the end of this. And she, and that's where I start the book. Like the first photograph is Baker in a sweater at home (laughs) in her glasses and just kind of, you know, being a person, just a regular woman who had had this amazing life that still is not over at the moment that that photograph is taken. There's still going to be another, you know, 10 years of awesomeness. So I just, I'm, I became interested in that. People talk about like, well, you know, she lost all her money. Um, on the steps of her castle. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, excuse me. Um, it's not a split level ranch or some random apartment, you know, <laughs> like she had a castle. Maybe we all hope to go broke on the steps of our castle. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. The I'll answer. do that now. I'll take that now. <laughs> Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> it's the, I mean, it's the ambition. It's the ambition. And when you approach this place, Will, if you ever go to this place, you're driving up and you look up and it is a castle on a hill. It is a, you can't see anything else around it. It appears to be floating in the air. And I was like, that's Josephine's house. Whoa, is it in Paris? 
No, it's just outside. Uh, okay. It's like an hour outside Paris in the Dorgan Valley. Valley. Wow. Yeah, out in the country. Yeah, a little country renaissance chateau out there. I mean, it's- Sounds it's, great. <laughs> yeah, and it's gardens and pools. And um, uh, I mean, I, I don't even know how many rooms were in that place. So I, I think this is someone of real vision and of real ambition and a vital life in a world that was not set up for her success. And so I, I'm i on Josephine's side. I'm just going to, <laughs> you know, just try to um, value her as a producer of knowledge about herself, whatever strands, whatever I could find, these little pieces of, of reflection and, um, and put those together because... She's more important to me. I, I don't care about these random colonialists, whatever. No, I care about her and what she's doing and what she wanted to do and how she thought about herself as far as what I can see. You know, and and and, and but and yet it was still I, I wasn't ready to release this book, I think, until video camp, to be honest. Well, that you've given us a perfect segue. First of all, thank you for that. And I hope everyone will go check out Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prism, available from Indiana University Press, a very affordable price of $24 in paperback. I feel like I'm um, David Letterman. Like, I like I want to like, I want to like hold up the, the book for the audience. And so, like, um, but seriously, I think, thank you for that. And now, now let's, let's talk about Video Camp, which is the affectionate name of the Scholarship and Sound and Image Workshop, where our friendship began. And, you know, let me take a step back first, and then I'll follow up on why you didn't feel like you were ready for Video Camp. But I would just be curious, because this is something that we talk about on the show all the time. Like, we make passing references to it. But I don't think I've asked anyone, what prompted you to apply to the, the, the program itself? And I guess kind of what got you interested in videographic criticism as, as a form more generally? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> the, the juiciness. I, I, what did I say on my application? Jesus, Chris, what did I say? <laughs> I I do I do recall a sense that I had done I felt that there was something else I needed to explore in my scholarship beyond writing and I was ready to experiment. I had done, I had, um, my colleague Kara Kadu and, um, and another filmmaker, Ugi Pak, had shown me a little bit of how to work with Adobe Premiere. And I really had fun doing that. It, I was like, oh my God, is this what filmmakers do? I can do this all day. This is great. <laughs> I was like, you, you know, you push buttons and you put the little pieces together on the timeline and, and then you, you make a movie. And I had made this like one minute movie about how it was, it involved Josephine Baker and Jesus, a, the character in this movie. It was like a, he was I think it was like a he walked on water and was like preaching, and so I just cut it to where the audience is going to see Josephine uh, the Baker instead of going to to see Jesus. And uh, so whenever they look up and Jesus is supposed to be there, just Josephine. And I just thought it was the funniest thing. I remember <laughs> laughing to myself, you know, like by myself for like forever. And I was like, and I just thought it was hilarious. And so for I think for a couple of years. I just sort of had that in my mind. And I had also done something where I, 
was I wanted to talk about these Thomas Edison films, but I did not want to talk about Thomas Edison. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. (laughs) I was like, I'm really curious about the figures in these films, and I didn't really have a way to know them that I wanted to pursue other than just looking at them and looking at how they look at the camera. And so I just was like, I think if you cut there and you cut there, then all you have is just them looking at you. And what if I just put all of those together, then I would have something. (laughs) I mean, it was just like, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. But I mean, people, I was amazing. People were really affected by it. And so was I. And so I, um, so more time goes by and years go by or whatever. And I just felt that I really wanted to understand what I was doing and that it would bring something to my scholarship. And I was done with Baker, I thought. And <laughs> Oh, really? You thought you weren't going to finish the book or? Oh, no, I thought that the book was finished. Oh, okay. I thought it was finished enough and um but it it, it Yeah, it anyway, wasn't. sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's it. I thought it was yeah. done and um and that when I was going to video camp, I would find something else to talk about. But, but when the, you get to video camp. <laughs> yeah, when I get to video camp, the requirements are to choose something that you know well enough to work on without really thinking about that thing itself. Like you can really see it on another level. Right. And, you know, and so I definitely tried other things, but that was the only thing I really had knew that intimately were the Baker films. So right. I was, I was like, all right, fine. <laughs> yeah, because listeners of this podcast are familiar kind of with the structure of video camp where you're assigned those exercises. Um, and then so the first week of video camp is those exercises. And then the second week is working on a rough draft um, of uh, a video essay project. And so as you say, when you're doing those exercises, and as you know, and I got to know being the TA running around helping everyone, like you will, it's far easier when you are familiar with the film object, when you know, okay, I have all these scenes in my head and I know that it's 20 minutes in, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You need, you, cause you want to learn how to think about it. You, and you get this assignment. I want to say it was in the morning, like 11 or something, and then it's due the next day. So you don't have a lot of time, you know, you're just sort of like, I'm sorry, what it's due tomorrow, but, but I don't even understand what you just signed us. So how are we going to be doing this? It was so terrifying, but then it was every time it was like by about three or four o'clock, it was like, Oh, okay. I know what I'm going to do. And then I would just do it. Yeah. And the added pressure of knowing that like the structure of video, it's so fun. I I love it. I, I want to go back, um, is like, you know, like, like you get your homework in the afternoon because in the morning you've just watched the previous day's exercises. And so they screen for everyone and then you break off into small groups and talk about them individually. So not so there's also that added pressure of everyone's going to see what I'm making. And yeah, and I thought it was really great listening. We had Chris and Jason on the podcast to talk about it sometime in quarantine. I don't know. It all blends together. I guess we're still in it. So I don't know. And Chris talked about, you know, that it's very rare for someone to make five really great exercises, but it's so fun because almost always someone makes at least one really amazing one. And it might not come till the last day or day three. And you're just kind of all watching. You're like, whoa, like that hit home. 
So, so tell me what that was like for you working with this familiar material. Because on one hand, you have this intense familiarity with it. You know it so well. But on the other, you're exploring it in an entirely new way. And in a way that is, you know, there are parameters to these exercises. And it's very rigid in the way that you have to think and work with it. So what was that like for you? It taught me that I was not done with Josephine Baker. And there was more that I needed to learn. And it taught me to pay attention. It showed me just the limits of what I had been doing and that there was a whole other archive in the movie itself that I had not even remotely considered. It was so humbling. It's kind of embarrassing to admit, honestly. (laughs) You know, I think a lot of people, like including Catherine Grant, have talked about this intimacy that you get with the film object when you make videographic criticism. It sounds like it sounds like you felt that Terry's nodding right now. What was it specifically that you that you saw? I don't know if it was like one thing, but what was it that for you triggered that insight? Or maybe it was a series of insights and a series of things. But take us into it a little. What were, was that? If you can remember, I mean, it was two years oh, ago. Oh no. Yeah. no. I remember. <laughs> I remember that shit. It was the Pechacucha. Pechacucha? Yeah. It was the, I don't know if it's six six pieces of 10 seconds or 10 six second. 10 six second. Yeah. Yeah. 10 six seconds. And I was looking for my six, my six seconds. And that's when I noticed like, but this love interest of hers is never looking at her. I was like, what, what's going on here? And I noticed that her friend, her friend is often in the sequence and he's got a hand on her hip and he's looking away. And Josephine Baker's character is just talking on. And she thinks he's listening, bless her heart. And he's not at all. He's completely disconnected. So, and he's the spotlight. He's the spotlight that should be making her sparkle. And yet he's turned away and she's over here. So once I noticed that, I said, said, oh my God, this is, um, this, this is, this is what I sensed, but did not know to, because you know, you're thinking narratologically, you're thinking of the big narrative story. And, and when it comes to this type of a romance plot, you don't think it's important. It, it feels like a side note, but the this assignment and video camp in general helps me to recognize that as knowledge and as a source of future knowledge about Baker. And so that first Pechacucha, I put, I just grabbed the, these these moments where of this non-touching and non-looking and that she's often in a frame by herself as well, weeping, locked out. There's one when she's in the rain, <laughs> knocking on the door and stuff. And it was like, oh my God. And But by contrast, he's touching the hair of the other girl and just, you know, always, you know, scooching up to her and stuff and just seeing it. I hadn't noticed it that plain, just on a visual level. I was really overly caught up in the words and the narrative and the ideology of the right. And I realized, oh, it's not about that. It's just really visceral, earthy, grounded. He don't want her. Right. And so did you come to that realization? Because it sounds so 
to add a little more context here. So for a Pecha Kucha, there's no, the assignment doesn't say that you need to have a theme to it or that it needs to have any structure. Like if you want to go eat dinner that night really quickly, you could literally, and I think some people might've done this in a, in a more deliberate way than I'm saying now, but randomly select, say, I'm going to take six seconds from the 12th minute, the 16th minute. There's there's a way you can do it like that. Whereas more, it sounds like with your Pecha Kuchas, you were more, you were, you were thinking through the material and a little more deliberate, but did you come to that realization as you were editing the clip together? Or was it this search for clips, this slowing down, the searching that led you to that epiphany? Or was it both? Or maybe both? No, no. It was the searching. And then it was like, I just sort of noticed, oh, and here's another one. And here's another moment. So then, and I think that I just remember this phrase from the discussion about showing something that it would you wouldn't normally see or that or that that potential was there and i just found it really revelatory mm. that um that i felt and i felt confident that i had seen something that actually is not apparent when you're watching it one i don't know that I don't know that anyone really cares that she doesn't get the guy at the end or see or feel her grief around that. Um, but but that intimacy that uh, that you mentioned that Katie was talking about is something I really felt with it. But yeah, but it was strictly the image. I was just, I saw it and then I saw it again and then I saw it again and then I just put those together. Yeah. You know, and oh, oh, and then you also have to put in audio, like continuous audio. Right. And I think I might have initially put her talking about, oh, that was it. That there's a moment where she talks about how much she's in love with this guy. And so I put that over it. But of course, the next morning, Jason said you had to um, change your audio to something else. And I was like, what? Right. Yeah. The, 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 on the first day they do us, this is a, this is a spoiler alert. So if you're going to apply to video camp, maybe you should cover your ears here. But after the participants make their first Pecha Kucha, we come and watch and then Jason and Chris go, all right, back up to the computer lab and pick a new minute of audio to put over it. So you end up making two Pecha Kuchas. And it's a really interesting way of, again, just like trying to disrupt everything and, and play it around. And Oh, so good. Yeah. Here, here's a question I have for you. And for me, I've found that videographic criticism, when I enjoy it most, it's when I'm working with the material that I that I love and that I have this personal connection to. I guess not always, but for the most part, like that's what's enjoyable for me. It's that intimacy. It's getting to know something. And at times I've actually felt overwhelmed by the relationship that I have with the object because on because you get so close to it that sometimes I think it's it can just be over it can just be kind of overwhelming and you think to yourself like I love this thing so much and I'm just distorting it I'm messing it around like and you feel and you also feel a pressure that whatever or at least I do that whatever the final product is has to do justice to the original work that you're appropriating assuming it's like a laudatory piece obviously if you're trying to criticize something that's bad it that's not as important and I'm wondering if you ever I mean if you ever felt that when you were working with Josephine Baker's work like did you ever feel too close no I you know my state of mind with that book in 20 I was just so fucking done with that shit I was (laughs) like get this out of my life please and I and I didn't feel great about the book I didn't under, you know what I mean? I was just like, I just need to end this. And I was almost like, I can't believe I'm still working on this book. And, but, and I thinking back on it, I think it was because I hadn't really, everything that we just talked about, like the authorship and that, and how 
I mean, I think I must sound very confident and very clear in what I think about her. And and that's where I am now. But I, I don't think I felt that way in 2019. Mm. And it was only through the exercises and through studying Baker videographically that I came to uncover. Well, for I think I, it was actually when I heard her talking about her own career in a way that I hadn't actually, because I never... I mean, it's so embarrassing. I don't know why it never occurred to me to just like find videos of her on YouTube. I mean, I just, I was just in a mindset of text, movie, theory concepts. This is what's been written about her. This, And I'm responding to this body of literature and I'm going to use the press and blah, 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 blah. But it really was lacking, I think, in confidence and in a sense of the, the soul of this person and the sense that I could believe in her. And, that, and I don't feel that I loved her. I think I fell in love with her during video camp. And, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I had a love for her. When you know something right. that is... To, to, that is a, a, a form of love, you know, that you have that proximity and you know the person. But to have a, a delightful love, a respectful love, that a warm, loving love, I think that really came from the time I spent in the lab really discovering these other embodiments of her. And when I heard her talk about her younger when I hear her, around my age now, as old as I am now, talking about, you know, because she's in her 50s. You know, I'll be 50 in like a couple of years. And so she's around midlife talking about what it was like when she was 19. That gave me the confidence that this is no banana dancer who who's just um, a primitivist uh, minstrel. This lady is a worker, a creator, who was in some extraordinary times, and if she's happy with it, then I'm happy with it. And I need to get onto her train and go from there. Not, this is what I'm uncomfortable with because the body and the exploitation of the, blah, 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 we all exploited. You can't be, exp- who's not exploited in this capitalist nonsense that we're trying to live in here? As we are shut up in our homes, so many people lost, come on, man. So if this lady is saying to me, I'm a hard worker, I've always been a hard worker. I loved my life in the theater. I don't know if the public, they just liked me and I just did it. I went for it. I'm like, yes, yes, Josephine, I feel that. And I will go with you wherever you're going. And that's all through the videographic things. I would never have gotten there. She really moved me, her, her warmth, her candor, her reflectiveness. Because you don't get that when you're reading words. And you don't get that from her characters. So I, it was another baker for me. And um, I'm grateful for it. Thank you, Video Camp. And thank you, Chris and Jason and Katie. I'm so moved by what you just said there. Like I have like chills. It's so like compelling to really hear not just what you're saying about video camp, which is, but just the, the personal and scholarly journey that this book and everything has like been for you. It's very, it's very powerful to hear you talk about that. You made mention to 
discovering these YouTube clips and and, into watching her online. And for those listening, Terry made a great video essay, uh, Josephine Baker Watches Herself, um, which is currently private on Vimeo. I'm not sure what your plans are for that going forward, but it it features these these YouTube interviews. I think there's a, is there a Carson interview, a Johnny Carson interview and a couple others in in her talking and the little side-by-side action with the clips of herself and text on screen and all these different rhetorical modes that you you, you offer in in the video essay in it your video essay has you know there's a there's a scholarly quotation in it but then it also dips into the poetic in in the second half and in hearing you talk about how you were thinking you were in this frame of mind in which you were working and then video camp kind of helped you break through you know when I, videographic criticism people are encouraged to take risks and to be more experimental and that's so a part of Jason and Chris's method and and the workshop and I'm wondering did, did you feel as though that was true and after video camp and after and in the process of working on the video I say how did you find yourself I don't know if taking risks is the right word but trying to really experiment 100% yeah it really it was just such a unique experience I think the togetherness you know I mean they say that what what enables people to really focus and to take risks is when you feel seen and connected that's it feeling seen and connected and yet it's really rare. It doesn't happen often. And, uh, and I think in our work lives, we don't often have that. And, um, and so maybe in my work life with this book, I really needed that. And, um, and because all you can really get from what was available was like an editor reads it or like someone reads it and they go, Oh yeah, that sounds really good or whatever, (laughs) you know, or (laughs) right. And it's, it's like a kind of a, a, validation or, um, or like this criticism, but being seen is different and feeling connected is a whole other thing. And I think that's video camp gave that sense of safety to try new things. And and we were all doing it. Nobody knew how to do any of these things and you and other, and you know, uh, Evan and all these other people, Ethan, Ethan. Ethan, Oh my God. It's right. It's (laughs) late. We're recording this late. We're recording this late. (laughs) I said that man's name so many times in two weeks. You would have thought it was imprinted on my (laughs) mind forever. Oh my God. No, Ethan's the best. Ethan's the best. Yeah. Especially like, like, you know, emphatically, Ethan, I need this. What happened? And it was just like, Control Z, Control Z. It's okay. But yeah, like being able to ask questions. Because I remember saying that in, like, in the first week, like, so are you saying that when I don't know something, I can just ask you how to do it and someone will just tell me the answer? <laughs> like, because I'm used to, like, I mean, I went to University of Chicago. I'm used to, no, you will invent the answer, deconstruct the answer, you will write the history of the answer. And then you will like, you will then interrogate whether this even is an answer. Like it, you know, it's totally unsatisfying. So this was like total renewal. It's great. It was very loving, very, very kind. So I, yeah, no, I learned a lot of things and I remember being very like moved. Like, like when I would discover the right moment, I would be over there at my little computer coughing I got some kind of terrible cold oh also, yes that's right also, yeah, yeah oh. it's crazy and also crying like I cried a lot um just sort of being moved by this person but then there was also just like and it's so fun when you realize 
there, I don't know, there's nothing like the power of creating, of finding something that wasn't there before. I really loved that. Like I remember um, showing like my abstract trailer and and people got the joke and stuff. And um, and I remember making it and just being like, oh, I'm gonna do a little extra ending. <laughs> And, and and just like kind of not, I don't even know if I thought about it that much, but I was just really in a flow for those two weeks. I just knew what to do. I never understood any of the assignments, but if you could tell me what buttons to push, I, I could make something. And I felt immensely powerful actually, that I could do this. And showing that video, when I go and show it places, it's the least stressful thing I can imagine. Mm-hmm. I show up, I say, well, I made this thing and here's how it went. And then they see it and they ask me questions and I'm like, oh, and people make comments of things I wasn't thinking about. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Could you yeah. say more about that? And, and video camp itself was this learning experience. I, exp- I mean, I'm saying it is true that I would be like, oh my God, I don't know how to do that. And I don't know what I'm going to do, but I never experienced any self-doubt, neurose. I was completely at ease for mm. those, that entire two weeks, except for the part where I couldn't like breathe and stuff (laughs) that kind of sucked and people were so nice bringing me food and it was good (laughs) and no one else got sick which i thank god but then what was it though that i had anyway sorry that's a great that's a great question (laughs) i know first case of coronavirus in the u.s i know (laughs) you you think it didn't cross my mind (laughs) cross my mind but i was like that shit is contagious and nobody else got sick so i don't think that's what it was i think it was some weird bronchial thing. Oh, God, you're better now. Um, Terry, thank you for that. And I have to say the goal of this podcast, which was formed out of in the weeks after video camp and sharing that experience with you and all the others was to capture this this great community of people who are dedicated to this work and to also show that you don't need to know, have some great editing skills. I certainly don't um, in order to do this work and to feel passionate about it and proud about it and to feel that it's generative and to, to share it with others. And so I think that's a great note to end our conversation as a word of encouragement to others to go out and and to make this work and know that as I've, I say this all the time, once you make it, you know, the best part about a video essay is when it's done and you start sharing it because there's a great community of people out there who are willing to engage in a very unpretentious, welcoming, warm way. And it's so great. And so Terry is, um, is nodding and, you know, it's, it's so true. So thank you so much, Terry, for, for validating that and for, for telling us about your experience. Yeah, it's a pleasure to do it. I, I, I've actually started kind of trying to teach it a little bit. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. You signed a Pecha Kucha. Well, that's how Bria Nichelle, that Pecha Kucha. Oh, of course. Of course. I'm not going to Yeah. Yeah. Of course. We screened that at, um, at Camden, the international Film festival. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She did that in the mountain in my Spike Lee class. I was like, well, look at this, what we're doing here. This lady knows when to cut. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. And and um, and it's been nice to share that with people. But it is interesting, like that framework of warmth and safety to take risks, I think is something uniquely generated within that video camp experience, or maybe because of the other people. But right. I never I don't I don't know how 
and I guess because I'm not trying to be a filmmaker, like I don't, right. I, I, I was moved by my feelings, my affects, my ideas. And that's very rare when you can do that. And I think it's made me, it's connected to something, connected to something in me or ignited something that actually kind of influences other things that I do. Hmm. It's, um, I know it changed, it, cha- it, I wouldn't say, it, it, yes, it changed me. Fine, 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 <laughs> fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that, that is our ending note. That is our climax. <laughs> Terry Francis, Terry Francis, the change Terry Francis. Thank you so much. For joining us. Oh, oh what, a, what a pleasure. Thank you for having All right. me. Of course. <laughs>